from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. More rains and more snow. How it's impacting everything from planting to calving this spring. Severe drought in West Texas is fueling cotton prices. It was dry last year, but we had subsoil moisture starting out the year, so there was something there to, uh, to grab a hold of. This year, it's just not there. The inflation factor doesn't seem to be eating into meat demand here at home or abroad. It means there's a lot of headwind. Does it mean at some point it'll probably will slow down demand? My guess would be yes, it probably will. Have we seen it yet? I guess my answer right now is no. And in John's world? Inflation. It's a feature, not a bug. Well, FBI putting ag on alert this week. A warning for farmers from the FBI to be on the lookout for potential hackers. Officials say they are concerned cyber criminals might go after ag cooperatives during planting and harvesting seasons. They say cyber actors may perceive cooperatives as lucrative targets with a willingness to pay due to the time-sensitive role they play in agricultural production. The FBI says six grain companies were targeted last fall and two others have already been attacked this year. They're calling on farmers to take defensive measures now against the potential threat, including backing up data and installing updates, using strong passwords, and using multi-factor authentication where possible. In a public advisory, federal officials say a significant disruption of grain production could impact the entire food chain. Well, with insurance planting deadlines arriving, farmers are gearing up to put the 2022 crop in the ground. But getting field work started remains challenging for some amid late season snows, cool temperatures and rain and in some cases drought. Those challenges showing up in the latest crop progress report from USDA. Four percent of the corn crop is in the ground as of last weekend. That's two percentage points behind the five year average. Texas continues to lead the way with 64 percent of the crop planted and some soybeans getting planted as well with one in the ground. That's one percentage point behind the five-year average. The cotton crop will also going in with 10% planted. That's one point ahead of average. In winter wheat conditions, will those continue to suffer in dry conditions with just 30% of the crop rated good to excellent across the country? Last week, it was 32%. Well, this time last weekend, we were in the middle of that historic spring blizzard, and many of North Dakota's ranchers were also in the middle of calving. Look at this video one rancher took showing cattle trying to escape the wind. Low visibility, making it tough for the rancher and her husband to feed the animals. They also had to shovel huge drifts just to get to the barn. By Wednesday, they could no longer get to the cattle to even check on them. But they say during the storm, they lost just one calf. But as the snow starts to melt, they're finding more losses. Calves are getting sick. Cows are all mixed up from being confined. Many areas, there's huge drifts. And so livestock that maybe perish might be covered in, in snow. And so we have to wait for some time and maybe for some snow to melt to reveal some of those losses. The Roths say they are grateful for the moisture, though, and hopeful it might be a step in the right direction. 
Well, the egg supply feeling the impact from avian influenza. More than 20 million hens. That's how many chickens have been lost at egg farms due to bird flu. USDA continuing to update the list of places testing positive for highly pathogenic avian influenza. The latest large operation impacted a farm in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, involving 1.4 million commercial layer chickens. The agency also confirming another commercial turkey operation in Polk County, Wisconsin, involving 20,000 commercial turkeys. Right Right now, wholesale prices for eggs are at least a dollar higher per dozen than a year ago, and that is partially being attributed to that highly pathogenic avian influenza. Well, keeping you updated on spring planting in Ukraine right now, even if Ukrainian farmers manage to harvest a crop, they don't have enough places to store it. The United Nations Food Program saying right now the country is struggling to export existing grain stocks due to the Russian invasion. They estimate 15 million tons of grains won't have space in the silos around the country. The WFP also saying 20% of planted areas in the country won't even be harvested. Still, many farmers are trying to plant. Mike Lee, who forecasts a black seed crops, sharing this video of sunflower seeding starting on a farm in Ukraine. He says it's close to where the fighting is currently taking place, and he reports tractor drivers are wearing bulletproof vests and helmets with everyone on heightened alert. Just this week, Ukrainian Ag Ministry says Ukraine has planted some 2.5 million hectares of spring-planted crops so far this year. That's 20% of the expected area. And even as the Federal Reserve works to raise interest rates, land prices rose double digits just in the first quarter of the year. According to Randy Dickhut and Farmers National, land prices rose 20% the first few months of the year. Higher commodity prices, along with land being considered a low-risk investment during surging inflation, is what helped drive those sales. Farmers National Company reporting multiple land sales in the $20,000 per acre range, most of those happening in the I-states, while in places like Missouri, the Dakotas, and Minnesota, land is selling between twelve dollars and $15,000 per acre. Farmers National says what happens in Ukraine, grain and oil prices, food supplies, and inflation will all determine trends in the next six months. That's it for the news. Well, as more wet weather on the way and halting plans to plant, well, we have a check of weather with Matt Yurisovic next. Meteorologist Matt Yurisovic joins us now with weather. Matt, more snow on the way for our viewers in North Dakota this weekend. Do you see any reprieve from the wet weather across the Midwest, though? Yeah, Tyne, we've had a lot of wet weather across the Midwest, and there is a little bit of a break from that, but it still stays unsettled to the point where showers could still be in the forecast all the way through this upcoming week. Taking a look at our latest drought monitor, though, still got dry conditions here across parts of the mid-Atlantic states down into the southeast and southern Florida still dealing with those abnormally dry conditions. A little bit of reprieve from that flood from the, uh, the drought here in parts of Louisiana. Then once you get into Texas, we still have those extreme to exceptional drought conditions. Those are persisting because most of the rain has been east of these areas and that's going to continue to be the case as we head through this week along with the fire danger possible there across the west with very dry conditions. We've also seen a little bit of improvement here northern plains northern Rockies that will continue to be the case 
in next week's edition of the drought monitor with the recent uh, trends there. And you can see still dealing with these drier conditions here across the north, but improved from the last couple of weeks. Same goes for places here in Nebraska and eastern Kansas, especially and then still very dry towards the west. But again, watching more precipitation that will be factored in to next week's root zone and still very, very wet here across uh, middle Tennessee and across that Mississippi River Valley while remaining pretty dry in the mid Atlantic states heading through the last week. So here's a look at the jet stream as we head into Monday. See that dip up there. That's going to keep the cooler air locked in. Meanwhile, staying warm in the southeast. That also signifies this little dip in the jet stream. Keeps things a little unsettled there in the uh, Midwest, in the Great Lakes, as we kind of head through the middle part of the week. But then it looks like another ridge is building. That's going to bring in the warmer air, and it's going to keep things more active then in the east. So that's something that we'll be watching as we head through the end of this week and into next week as that ridge looks to get pretty strong and cooler air looks to filter in to the east coast. So here's a look at our Monday cold front coming across the middle part of the country through the Great Lakes and the Ohio Valley low down in parts of Texas bringing more rain and some thunderstorms toward eastern Texas and all the way up that cold front cooler behind it but staying warm back in the southwest with lots of sunshine and another system coming in to the Pacific Northwest heading into Wednesday. Lots of sunshine staying warm down towards the southwest, mild in the east, but cooler again still across the north with few scattered showers along a warm front and more showers in the uh, northern uh, Rockies there. That system will eventually kind of move out into the upper Midwest, could bring some more showers, cooler air to the northern side, staying warm to the south with high pressure in control down that way as well. So here's a look at temperatures this week, cooler across a good portion portion of the country while staying warmer in the Four Corners region and in Florida. And here's a look at the precipitation above average back in the Pacific Northwest. Below average, though, where we need it the most time back to you. Well, the lack of planting progress seems to be on the minds of traders earlier this week, but it's only April. Tommy Rosafi and Darren Hudson join me next to talk about what is impacting prices as of late. Welcome back to the show this weekend. We have Darren Hudson of Texas Tech University, as well as Tommy Grisafi of Advanced Trading joining us this weekend. Tommy, when you look at the markets and the price action earlier on the week, in the week, it seemed traders were really trading on the fact that planting progress has been slow. But Tommy, it's not like we're that late. It's still April. Right. April showers bring May flowers. And in some cases, April snows uh, might bring May flowers up north. And that you have to keep looking at the drought map. And if I'm seeing this right, the drought map's getting smaller. Uh, that's not what the bulls want to hear. The bull wants to be fed every day. But if we need moisture to grow a crop, we may not get it in the exact date you wanted. And all these guys posting pictures of planting soybeans in, in April and earlier months, they may not get them. They may have to use last year's picture on their phone, but we will get the crop in. There is such a large motivation to get the crop in. And when you talk about prevent plant, Prevent plants based on the spring price and the fall price or where the markets are now, when you talk about states that could have prevent plant time, we are such a higher price that there's such a motivation to plant something. It may not be the exact thing you want, but the farmers will get it planted. Yeah, so as we see how the lack of planting impacted prices earlier in the week, you know, there are concerns where you are, Darren, around that Lubbock area. It is so dry. We showed pictures last week. It looks more like the Dust Bowl. So, you know, just paint the picture for us. How dry is it and how could that impact 
specifically cotton production this year? Well, I think, you know, it's safe to say it's probably one of the driest on record. I saw uh, a swath of about 16 counties through the central uh, part of the plains that uh, least amount of moisture from September to May uh, on record since 1895. Uh, and the rest of the area is probably in the top five driest uh, since 1895. So it, we're going into this situation. And it was dry last year, but we had subsoil moisture starting out the year. So there was something there uh, to grab a hold of this year, but it's just not there. And, um, you know, basically means we're, we're going to have a lot of planted acres out here in cotton. I uh, don't know how many harvested acres we're going to have. Uh, the irrigated probably has a shot. Uh, the dry land right now, unless we start getting some rains pretty quick, it's, it's going to be brutal. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at the price action, though, Tommy, you know, is there anything to learn from this week? I mean, any little issue, any little hiccup seems to be fueling the market. Do you think that is a trend that will continue? Well, we're going on two years of this bull market. It was uh, upon the viewing of this, we'll go on the two year anniversary of crude oil trading negative 37. And bull markets don't always last too long. One year is awesome, two is great, three is hard to do. And so the markets are sending out, the lesson we learned is that the markets are sending out a signal for everyone and anyone anywhere in the world who can be involved in agriculture, that it's profitable. And as we know, we're old enough, and even you're old enough, time to remember how awesome ag was in 08 and 12 and how the whole world got involved. And the truth is, they haven't got out of it. So we're going to get a lot more people involved in markets and growing production. When the prices come down, that's the billion-dollar question, we're going to go from massive profitability to not profitability again. This isn't new. I didn't just make this up. This has happened Boom-bust periods have happened in agriculture over and over. So we had a rising market into exploding interest rates, into inflation. We're going to have a harvest that comes right into midterm elections. And if this is anything like crude oil, not that we have a strategic grain reserve or strategic fertilizer reserve, but it's going to be a very politically motivated reason to talk down food prices as we come into election season and harvest time. There's been a lot of commodity prices that have just been mind-blowing to watch, but cotton is one of those, Darren. Is it just the supply and demand right now that has caused cotton prices to be on such a run, or are there some other factors right now that are at play in this market? Yeah, I think uh, there there is a sort of a current supply-demand imbalance. Uh, if you look, for example, um, there's roughly about 14 million bales of uh, cotton out there on, on call contracts that are unfixed by textile mills. So there's still a lot of buying left to do. Um, and then you couple that with weather and, and the constraints, supply constraints that we're looking at. Uh, you know, you're, you're talking about you know significant upside potential uh, still in that market. Most of that's priced in uh, at the moment, but uh, certainly weather is going to change things. And then you, you couple that with, uh, you know, India just announced it, it did away with its uh, tariffs on imported cotton, uh, which caused a you know, pretty big dislocation of cotton moving uh, into a potentially new market. So I think all those things uh, together are, are what's fueling this. All right. Well, Ukraine's Ag Ministry did give an updated forecast on planting there. So how is that uncertainty also impacting prices? Well, we'll talk about that later on U.S. Farm Report. We'll walk into any grocery store or farm supply store right now, and it's quickly apparent inflation is here. But what does it mean for the future? Here's John Phipps. Last week, we talked about inflation. The numbers we are bombarded with today are unsettling. 
And I do believe we are experiencing a truly unique economic environment. I'm also optimistic that such turmoil is when market systems work best. People are simply going to make fortunes solving some slice of those problems I listed last week. When the most recent CPI numbers were shouted from the headlines, the fact that the year-over-year -year figure was the highest in 40 years struck me as mildly depressing. I remember living through that record 40 years ago, a realization that is becoming way too frequent in my life. A longer-term view, then, of inflation might be helpful. This is how good old Fred at the St. Louis Federal Reserve depicts it. Instead of the monthly or annual change, this graph shows an index of that fabled basket of goods and services beginning in 1948 when it cost about 25 bucks. That same basket of stuff would cost over $280 today. While that seems shocking, notice that the line is almost straight and inclines at the same angle over decades. In other words, there is always some inflation. It seems to be a feature of market economies. Beginning in 1970, that slope was about 5% per year. In other words, the last 30 years of 2% inflation was remarkably low based on history. If, as I expect, this lofty inflation rate comes to an end one way or another, history indicates that most prices will be sticky, which is a real economic term. Most retailers and service providers are reluctant to lower prices even when they can. This is especially true with less competition due to near monopolies and less foreign trade. Employers do not lower wages either. They lay people off and stop giving raises. This does not hold true for commodities, however, as so farmers, as we well know, our adjustment will be far more exciting. While sellers may effectively lower prices with sales, rebates, and other tactics, higher prices don't backtrack for a good reason. Nothing makes consumers hesitate to spend like decreasing prices for the same products and services. This is the concern I have going forward. How fast will our system adjust to sticky prices and wages? I'm reluctant to guess, but the last time we had an inflation problem, the recovery was not done easily. Just slowing inflation is a necessary start, but only the beginning of a much longer economic rebalancing. And if you want to watch more of John Phipps's commentary, you can do so with the QR code on the screen. Thanks, John. All right, when we come back, Machine Repeat, here's this week's Tractor Tales. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator, it's not just any closing wheel. Reach your yield potential. Free shipping on all orders with coupon code USFR. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week we have a story of a classic Ferguson, part of a family collection in Illinois. This is a 1957 TO35 Ferguson. A lot of people ask us, well, is that the right color when we go to tractor shows? And yes, it is the correct color. When we restore tractors, uh, we're very particular. We want them as close to original as possible. I don't know why Ferguson decided to paint them this color. They started out, they were all gray the TO20s, TO30s, and then in 1955 they came out with what is called the Green Belly uh, TO35. All the cast iron parts were uh, metallic green, the sheet metal was gray. In 56 they came out with the 
what they call the bamboo beige is what this one is. And then in 58, they were getting ready to transition to Massey Ferguson. So they started painting them Massey Ferguson color, which was red and gray. When we got into this club, uh, FINA Enthusiasts of North America, we found out that they made them in three different colors. So we had to have one of each color. All three of our tractors are retired, basically. We go to four to five tractor shows every summer. We have a plow for each one of them. If the show has the facilities to plow, we go out and plow just because we want to show them in their natural environment, which is working. We really enjoy uh, showing them to the people, but we enjoy plowing with them too. The Ferguson tractors did not come from the factory with lights or bumpers or the stationary hitch. Those were added at the dealership, and so there were different variations, different type of light kits that they purchased to install, and so that's why the different uh, lights. Thanks, Greg. Well, just last week, we told you how economists say even with the double-digit increase in retail meat prices, shoppers are still forking over the extra cash. But is the same thing happening abroad? That's next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, last week we showed you the brutal weather many ranchers are facing this spring, from wildfires to blizzards. It's a battle against Mother Nature. But on the demand side, well, shoppers' interest in meat has held strong despite higher retail prices. And it's a theme also setting sail in exports as meat exports continue to be on fire. Higher prices at the store don't seem to be causing consumers to veer away from the meat counter. And it's robust meat demand abroad that's also setting sail. Demand uh, in a post-COVID environment in a lot of the world, not all of the world, but a lot of it is very resilient. Um, it's rebounding and re rebounding with gusto, so to speak. The U.S. is home to beef production that ranks first in the world. When it comes to beef exports, Brazil holds the top spot. As far as exports go, Brazil is the largest uh, beef exporting country uh, by quite an amount in recent years. Uh, the second tier would be the U.S., India, and Australia, and they export at about 60% of the level that Brazil does. While still not the top global exporter, U.S. beef exports exploded in 2021. We had a record last year, a record by far, over 2018. U.S. Meat Export Federation says that explosive growth was thanks to multiple markets. It was Japan, it was Central America, South America, and as we start out this year, um, the first two months of uh, 2022, it's really a lot of the same. USDA's meat export data revealed beef exports in February climbed another 5% compared to last year, and the value of those shot up 35%. Of course, on the beef side, you got to talk about China and what's going on with a $2 billion market for China. USMEF says since the U.S. gained meaningful access to China in early 2020 through the Phase 1 Economic and Trade Agreement, beef exports to China, Hong Kong have climbed. January and February exports to the region shot up 56% in volume compared to a year ago and 87% in value. While robust, it actually trails the pace we saw in the second half of last year by 11%, and that's largely due to COVID restrictions. And China is very much in the middle of a zero COVID policy where we have staff that can't leave their apartment buildings. In March, an increase in COVID cases sent Shanghai into lockdown mode. And now Shanghai is facing food shortages due to businesses shuttering 
and supply chains severely hampered by the lockdowns. The food service sector is getting absolutely hammered in China, traditionally a sector where USB, for example, is very strong. Even with COVID shutdowns today, demand for beef in China is expected to rebound. You know, we continue to see strength in terms of U.S. beef exports to China. Uh, I think that's been helpful to uh, cattle prices and beef prices. And I, I think there's still a possibility for further growth as we look ahead on that front. But on the pork side, China holds a different story. They're coming off some rebuilding on the pork herd in China. The numbers are down as we expected. The February data shows pork exports fell 17% compared to a year ago. Number one, China matters a lot in, in this discussion. So U.S. pork exports to China, if we look back to, to 2020, all the strength we saw with the billion pound increase in pork exports was due in large part to China. When you look at 2021, the billion pound decline, uh, is due in large part to China. When you look at the past several years, pork exports were propped up by China's need for pork as African swine fever wiped out a large portion of the hog herd there. And as China rebuilds their herd today, it's causing pork to find a new home. Thus far, we've seen, in the case of Mexico, actually, in, in many cases, helping offset the decline in pork exports to China by additional pork to, to Mexico. The good news on the pork side is that, uh, you know, we've, we're in this diversification mode as an industry trying to maximize um, the demand to as many markets as possible. We're not relying only on China. Pork may be down from historic levels as beef exports continue on record pace. But Hallstrom says both sectors are proving to be resilient as headwinds continue. We have uh, inflation around the world starting to go up. Um, you know, inputs are higher, you know, petroleum prices, fuel prices. Um, corn prices, soybean prices, you know, the list goes on and on. And that means the cost of doing business is also higher. Every point along the way of, of taking cattle and getting beef and getting it overseas costs more. You know, right now we're in an, an era of a lot of uncertainty, volatility in general on a global scale, just with all of the geopolitical things going on. And beef trade has not been dramatically impacted by that. While exports are strong and remain at record and near record levels, it's happening despite shipping challenges. Without a doubt, these numbers would be better if we if we had a supply chain that was uh, quote unquote normal. Hallstrom says without those hurdles, shipments to Asia would be even stronger than where they set today. We have a lot of info showing that especially frozen shipments uh, to Japan, to Korea, China are being delayed. So yeah, the numbers would be even better. The caution flags are high, but not enough to send export demand on a major detour yet. And it means there's a lot of headwinds. Does it mean at some point it'll probably will slow down demand? My guess would be yes, it probably will. Have we seen it yet? I guess my answer right now is no. As economists explore the waters of what the future of meat exports could hold, expectations remain high. So the exports have been an important part of our beef demand. In 2021, beef exports were at a record level. They'll probably moderate a little bit as we go through the year, but we're still going to be at, at historically high levels. U.S. Meat Export Federation says appetites have permanently changed in some countries since the COVID pandemic began. And in fact, in places like Asia, it's shopping online that really has been gaining steam. All right, when we come back, we'll have more from our marketing roundtables and a look at Ukraine. That's what Tommy Grisafi and Darren Hudson next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator, it's not just any closing wheel. 
reach your yield potential. Free shipping on all orders with coupon code USFR. Joining us again, Tommy Grisafi, as well as Darren Hudson. Darren, we got a new forecast out this week from Ukraine's Ag Ministry saying about 20% of the expected spring plantings have been planted at this point. You know, there's still a lot of uncertainty. And as long as we do have this uncertainty, do you think it fuels the market or actually does it provide more risk when you look at prices today? I think the answer is risk. Um, you know, there's uh, that uncertainty sort of spills off into people not quite knowing where to position themselves. Um, you know, there's a lot of big players in, in these markets, uh, the ETFs and others, uh, that, are, that are putting a lot of money in these markets that uh, sort of, you know, uh, you, you put a million dollars into treasuries, nobody cares. You put a million dollars into wheat and, you know, it, it, it tends to move the market. So I think you, you, uh, you have to be wary of sort of these short-term price moves and thinking about sort of longer term. Ukraine, the uncertainty in Ukraine certainly plays into um, you know those grain markets and oil markets, uh, oil seed markets. But I, I think uh, you know over the longer term, we have to think about what happens next. Um, where are we going to have uh, supplies coming from? How are we going to backfill in some of these situations? And at, you know when we when we pull that volume out of the market, if if Ukraine doesn't successfully get uh, a full crop in. Um, you have to start thinking about, you know, the marginal impacts of a drought on, on the high plains or somewhere else. Um, those start to play a much bigger role when you're, when you're working on much thinner margins uh, in terms of uh, carrying. Tommy, December corn was on quite a run of days that it had closed uh, in the green. So when you look at corn prices today, though, and where they set, do you think that all of the risks that we've been talking about that have been fueling these markets do you think that that is priced in at this point? Well, we, we had a heck of a run in both 2022 corn and 2023 corn was uh, mind boggling. And even 24 and 25 corn for those really brave enough to look at them. So we've had a heck of a run. We're 750 corn. Maybe we're a little lower or higher upon you all watching this. But from where we were a few months ago, I'd say we're a lot more fair and balanced. Could we go to 850 or nine? Yes. December $10 calls traded 24 cents a day. There's a December $15 call for uh, those who are involved in options. Same thing with beans. We have calls that are much higher strikes and puts that are much lower strikes. So you look at 750 corn, historically, it's high. But with what's happening in the world, we've never had this happen. There's no one old enough who ever remembers the last time Russia invaded Ukraine into having back-to-back -back problems in South America, a drought in North Dakota, Montana, and Canada, and phenomenal demand. There's a lot of people in the world. There's a lot of money in the world and people were just starting to eat better. And as you and I know, Tyne, we recorded that the day the war broke out. Food insecurity will be a subject. I went to Costco the other day. There was food pallets and pallets. If you want to run out and be one of those uh, people who think we're going to run out of food, I don't know if we're going to run out of food. I don't think we are. I think the people who need the, fo the food the most won't be able to afford it. And that's where the markets are. Dece corn 750. We could trade down to 550. We could trade to 950. Be interesting to look back in three months and see where we are. Darren, you had mentioned ETFs. You'd mentioned funds. You know, some of these other players that are in these markets. What do you think would make them 
exit that would then we would see prices, you know, really fall to the downside fairly quickly. What factor do you think it would take? Well, you know, I think in a lot of cases, and I'll speak uh, uh, specifically to cotton, you know, I think one of the things that the ETFs, or, or at least um, you know, some of those ETFs are looking at, would be things like export sales. Uh, you know, if we start seeing that drop off, that's sort of indicative of the spending demand, you know, further down the chain, uh, especially in Asia. And, you know, if we start seeing really weak export reports, um, you know, I think that probably causes people to get skittish at this price level. Uh, and they'll want to exit. I got to be honest, though, you know, I've, I've had phone calls from ETFs that have asked me questions like, uh, where do they grow cotton? Um, as opposed to highly technical or, or you know, sort of deep philosophical uh, thinking on those commodity markets. But, you know, it, it, it tends to, uh, you know, sort of be a self-fulfilling prophecy or, or sort of a, a, a machine feeding itself is that once that starts moving in a direction, they all start moving in that direction. And that's, I think, that downside risk that Tom is talking about. It, it, it's there. Um, you know, we're, we're probably much closer to being balanced, um, you know, at that buck 20 level in cotton, um, even though there's a lot of unfixed sales out there. I think, you know, what would happen is if we if we don't plant the cotton crop or it stays dry out here, you know, that's going to trigger a, a, a massive upside move. If we start having a, a lot of rain like we did last year at this time, um, you know, there's a lot of downside risk in that, that buck 20 cotton. So I think you know a lot of that is, is weather dependent at this point, at least in, in some of its components. All right. Thank you both for joining us this weekend. We appreciate it. Let's take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, it's now estimated more than 7 million people have been displaced since Russia invaded Ukraine. That's according to the International Organization for Migration. But for one young lady who was an orphan in Russia long before the war, she's found a home on a farm in Illinois. FarmWeekNow.com shares her story with us this weekend. I live in the orphanage for 15 years, since I was probably five months old. When I turned 15, I got this opportunity that there's a family here in the United States would like to invite me first for 10 days and possibly will be lead to adoption. They own a um, farm. I have no idea they, they were farmers. And they had pigs, cattle, chickens, you know, and th this greenhouse is actually used to be hog buildings. When I came here finally as adopting this adopting family, they find out how much I actually like growing stuff in the orphanage because we did a lot, a lot of stuff up there too for ourselves. First, I didn't speak English. It was just that I have a dictionary on me and the different culture just was different too for me. And as, as much as bet I want to tell them how much I appreciate what they were doing, I couldn't. When she came for the 10 days, we had just a, a, a family garden, just a, a small one. And she went out and didn't, couldn't speak English, but she, she knew what the garden was and she went out and started working in the garden. She fit into our family so well. So they gave me this acre and I started just planting radishes, cucumbers, whatever. And he made me to go to a farmer's market. He says, would you like to go to a farmer's market? And I communicate with people. I learn how to count money at the farmer's market, just as simple as it is. From a little acre, we grew 
Now we have a 15 acres of vegetables and flowers. We always, every year we get in bigger and bigger, I feel like. I've been here 18 years now, and I feel like, yeah, I live here longer than I lived in Russia. Since I have my own kids now, and being a mom, and I'm trying to teach them, like, if you like this, you can do it. You know, you, everybody's dream, like, they want to be a teacher or they want to be a doctor. There's not very many farmers up there. You know, I want to not just in inspire my kids, I want to inspire the other young woman or any, or kids, just if they want to be a farmer, you know, be a farmer. <laughs> She's a talented girl. She's uh, very talented when it comes to, to raising plants and the flowers she does all summer long, the cut flowers, arranging them. So our season's gonna be starting here pretty much first week of May, well, week before Mother's Day, and of course, who doesn't like flowers? But looking at this beautiful like flowers, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know what? I always look around and I'm like, we did this. We create this, you know, it's, it's amazing. Thank you to farmweekandnow.com. Inspirational stories like that are always refreshing, especially with so much other news right now. All right, we need to take a quick break, but farmland prices are up double digits just in the first quarter of this year. But is it revealing a more alarming trend? Customer support is next. Well, as we share during the news segment at the top of the show, Farmers National Company reports farmland prices are up 20% in the first quarter alone. So is it a result of phenomenal demand or not enough supply? Or is it actually a more alarming issue facing land buyers today? Here's John Phipps. Okay, we've got a frequent but uh, well worth revisiting question. With urban expansion gr rapidly growing, where do you see farmland prices and agriculture as a whole in 30 years? Seems like we might run out of productive farmland in our own Midwest. That's from Bob Wakeman in Kokomo, Indiana, our first two-mug winner. I know I have debunked this several times, but as Tyne and my editors have reminded me, an entire generation has grown up during my time as a commentator. The short answer to this question of farmland loss is no. The longer answer is no way in heck. First, some context. Here is one quote that got massive coverage in the farm and general media. Farmland in the United States decreased by 31 million acres over a 20-year period. Okay, do some math. That's a million and a half acres per year. Now let's look at our farmland inventory. Right now we're around 900 million acres, so we're converting less than 0.2 2% per year. This rate is fairly stable as well. It is not increasing. Housing starts show this. The frequent originator of such hype is the American Farmland Trust. During my career, they have made a business out of crying out, the acres are falling, the acres are falling. They are also the source of that, uh, the persistent hysteria about farmland turnover. More than 40% of American farmland and ranch land will change hands over the next 15 years. Well, this is actuarially predictable. You pry farmland from cold, dead fingers. In other words, farmland tends to change ownership roughly about once a generation or every 20 to 25 years, which then implies a rate of 4% per year. There may be a slight uptick as the, the group of boomers shuffles off the mortal coil, but it's going to be hard to measure accurately because it's so small. Over half of farmland turnover is interfamily, inherited. 
Finally, none of these urgent predictions have begun to factor in the rapid drop in U.S. population growth and the very real possibility of population decline soon. If you want to see what that means for farmland conversion to housing, visit Eastern Europe or Japan, where whole villages have been left empty. Any solution to this exaggerated problem runs against the rights of farm owners to sell their land for staggering multiples of its agricultural value. The loss of farmland is an overblown localized problem. Whenever you see or hear similar warnings, just do the math. Well, speaking of shortages, there's a new effort to solve the shortage of rural veterinarians across the U.S. We'll tell you about it in From the Farm next. Well, it's no secret there's a shortage of veterinarians across rural America. But thanks to a new partnership, it's aiming to bridge the gap and solve the need. It's estimated that students who graduated from veterinary school in 2020 had an average student loan debt close to $189,000. Just this week, Zoetis Foundation and Farm Journal Foundation announced a partnership called the Veterinary Debt Solutions Program. The goal is to help address the mounting student debt while also increasing the number of vets in rural America. The program will also try to uncover the problems and solutions plaguing the profession today through research. That's all the time we have this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. And you can catch the full episode of U.S. Farm Report on Farm Journal's YouTube page. That link is on the screen. Thanks for watching. Join us next weekend as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.